And that's where we will be this morning. And as you do that, a couple of things. I'll just reiterate an announcement that John made a moment ago, just to encourage you to come this evening to hear Casey and Jennifer Bedell speak about their opportunity with Ministry to State. It's a fascinating opportunity. The Morrises are soon to depart from us to head to the West Coast for a wonderful church planting ministry opportunity there. The Bedells are soon to leave from us to the East Coast for not a church planting effort, but a a very unique opportunity. And I would encourage you to come this evening and hear about that from them. It should be a very encouraging time. Easter will soon be upon us, as you well know, as spring begins to open itself up to us. And so I want to spend these couple of Sundays in Luke chapter 9. Here in this uh, chapter of Luke, uh, it's helpful for us, I think, uh, to settle our hearts on the events that lead up to the most pivotal day, the most pivotal moment in all of history. And Luke helps us to do that, leading into Palm Sunday and Maundy Thursday and, of course, Easter morning itself. And in this part of Luke, people are wondering... Exactly who is this man, Jesus, who is walking among us, speaking and healing and even forgiving people, as presumptuous as that might have seemed to so many, forgiving people of their sins. Who is this man? They, so many of them, had at least heard about, if not seen, remarkable things in his words and in his works. And here, he sends his 12 disciples out on a test drive, as it were, in order to test their own uh, gifts, their ministry in his name. And then he performs an amazing, ridiculously amazing miracle. And it all stirs up the question, who is this man? Who is this man? So Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. In whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and Jesus took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, They followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. 
Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, What do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. May we pray. Father, we pray that you would give us your spirit, that you would be at work among and in us and through us, because if you're not, we are simply spinning our wheels. We are wasting our time. Oh Lord, will you let that not be so? Would you grant that we might see your word and hear it and believe it? For Jesus' sake and in his name, amen. You may be seated. I was sitting in the church office recently, and our office is located over near SMU. If you've not been there before, come and visit us. We're in a, an office tower. We're, we're tenants of SMU, and we're located right next to Central Expressway across from the George Bush Presidential Center, and from the windows of our office, we can see up and down Central Expressway, so we kind of hear the traffic all the time there, at least at a distance, and one day I was sitting there and I heard the sickening crunch of plastic and metal that can only be a car wreck. So I got up and looked out the window to see what it was. And indeed, down there on Central Expressway, the southbound lane heading down towards downtown, a van and a pickup truck had bumped into each other. It wasn't a severe Wreck, but it was in the middle lane of Central Expressway, and they were stopped there. And they gradually, slowly began to make their way as traffic allowed off to the side of the road to get out of the way. And I stood there maybe for 90 seconds watching this unfold. And in that short amount of time, I could see north, all the way up to the gold towers at Northwest Highway, as the traffic began to back up and stop and park in the middle of a weekday afternoon, all because of one momentary accident that was now moving off to the side of the road. The cars had begun to back up from SMU all the way back to Northwest Highway and beyond. One momentary event inevitably affects distant observers. Meteorologists call this sort of thing in their world the butterfly effect. Maybe you've heard of that before which is the, the theoretical idea that the flap of a butterfly's wings on one continent can, in theory at least, on another continent weeks later cause a hurricane to blow up and storm across the land. Or maybe in the movies even, you've seen this sort of thing, especially movies that have to do with some sort of time travel. In that classic Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey is despairing of his circumstances, and an angel comes to him, and, and George Bailey at, at one moment finally says, I just wish I had never been born. And the angel has a bright idea, and he says, okay, so it is. 
You were never born. And then the angel takes him back into the town and everything has changed. The whole town is living under oppression and trial and difficulty all because George Bailey had never been born. Or in physics. A simple stone dropped into the calm waters of a pond sends ripples across the pond. The ripple effect of one momentary event. In Genesis chapter 3, as was read to you some moments ago, two stones dropped. For one, man ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for two, God spoke to the serpent. Two stones dropped and the ripples of redemptive history began to move. The first wave of ripples was a false man-made kingdom. One which required the redemption of God. The second wave of ripples, waves even, was the true kingdom of God coming forth to provide that redemption. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, that is her offspring, shall crush your head, though you shall strike his heel. And the redemptive ripples began to spread. Adam by faith, named his wife the mother of all the living, even though he now knew they were going to die. He didn't really know what death was. He just knew it was coming. Noah, by faith, built an ark where there was no water because he walked with God. Abraham, by faith, awaited a promised heir despite Sarah's old and barren womb. Moses, by faith, confronted the enslavement of his people in a powerful and pagan land. And David, by faith, demonstrated gracious royal rule, even despite his own many falterings. The redemptive stone had dropped, and the the ripples were moving with steady resolve towards the pivotal moment of all of history. Now, every Easter we celebrate that moment, don't we? Every Easter we remember and recall that moment, the moment when God himself reigned over death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we approach it again this year, you you see the ripples ever widening, ever moving with steady resolve as the stone that God had dropped millennia ago becomes known through the power of God's work. The power of God's work. Luke, remember, was not only a doctor, but a historian. And he was interested in the details of the development of Jesus' ministry. Jesus had called his disciples to himself. They'd begun to follow him. He taught them theology. He spoke to them in parables. He performed for them miracles. All of these things stirring great questions regarding his identity. Who is he? It wasn't simple enough just to come to them, call them to himself and say, hey guys, I'm God, so just follow along and do as I say. That takes a while to digest, doesn't it? And so it took some details as it unfolded along the way. Stirring up questions regarding his identity. And then in this passage, he gives them his power and authority over demons and diseases and he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. He sends them out on a test drive, so to speak, with very simple instructions. What were his instructions? Take nothing for your journey. 
Don't take a staff. Don't take a bag. Don't take bread. Don't take money. Don't even take a change of clothes, he said. Now, the disciples lived in a very simple time, much simpler than the time in which we live, and they might not have been too bothered by these simple instructions, but surely a little bit. I mean, not even a change of clothes. I mean, we're going to be gone for a week or so. What are we going to, you know, Jesus will go, but it's going to be a few days. We, we need to take some stuff with us. I mean, at least a loaf of bread or maybe a little money. Where are we going to eat? How's that going to work? They don't seem to have asked that question. Maybe they did, and Luke just doesn't tell us. But can you imagine setting off on a journey with such simple instructions? In December of 2003, our family went from small station wagon to minivan over the course of a trip from Georgia to North Carolina. Our twins, William and Ansley, had been born just two months before, and Carson, our older one, was not yet two yet. And we decided we'd travel to North Carolina to visit Mary's family. And so we packed three children in car seats into the back seat of the little station wagon that we had and filled up the back of it to the top with diapers and changes of clothes and bottles and baby carriers and bouncy seats and then, you know, a few things for us to wear for the week that we were going to be gone. And I couldn't see out the rearview mirror. It was so loaded down with stuff. And what normally would be a seven-hour drive turned into a 13-hour drive as we had to make many stops along the way and readjust and feed hungry babies and all of those sorts of things. It became such a stressful trip that while we were there, I emptied out the station wagon, drove it to the Honda dealer, traded it in, and we drove back in a minivan. We pack lots of stuff, don't we? When we're going to go somewhere, we need to have something to support us. Jesus said to his disciples, it's much simpler than that in the kingdom of God. He said to them, I've given you all that you need, my power and my authority. Now, you go and depend only on God at work to do your work. Upon their return, in verse 10, they seem to have had lots to report. Maybe they had lots of stories to tell, and so they come back together. And Jesus draws them off to a small place to talk about these things. But people followed along because they were curious about who is this man. And Jesus welcomed them, and he began to preach to them more and more about the kingdom of God. And apparently thousands of people gathered on the hillside where they were. And the day wears away, and the twelve disciples want all these people to leave. They want to talk about their stories and have shop talk together. And they say to Jesus, you've got to send them away. They're surely hungry. They need a place to stay. And Jesus, seizing a teachable moment, says to them, you give them something to eat. All right, now the moment of crazy looks on their faces had to blow up. Okay, we can get along for a week without a change of clothes, but Jesus, there are 5,000 men on the hillside. You think we're going to feed them? Are you crazy? And you can see it in the sarcasm of their response. You know, we've got five loaves and two fish. That's not enough. Unless, of course, we go out and buy them food. I mean, Jesus, we could just go to Sam's down the street with our Sam's card and come back with carts full of food for these 5,000 people. Jesus, are you crazy? We can't feed these people. And so he says to them, sit them down in groups. And he prays and he passes out the food. The disciples could not feed these people. It was not possible. So Jesus provided the miracle while they distributed the food. 
Jesus provided the power while they did the work. The power of God at work. Skeptics look at this particular miracle and they have all kinds of explanations. You know, they suggest that surely Jesus' example of sharing the few pieces of food that they had moved other people to share what they coincidentally had and then everybody had food to eat. There was no miracle there. Others will say that Jesus just broke the food into tiny bits and everybody had a crumb of bread, maybe a scale of fish, and then he hypnotized the crowd with his power of persuasion in order to think, to cause them to think that they were now satisfied when in fact they were not. There was no miracle there. One commentator says, it's fascinating how human ingenuity reaches new heights in its effort to eliminate the supernatural from the miracles of God. A miracle did happen. And Jesus said through it to his disciples, I've given you all that you need. I've given you my power and my authority. Now you go and depend only on God at work in order to do your work. The work of a disciple is to be faithful with what God has provided to do the work that he requires. Such is the life of the church. That's who we are as a church, depending upon the power of God's work. Luke puts these events back to back, I think, as they happened in order to show that God is at work by his power in his people. Through his disciples, despite their handicaps and their lack of supplies and their uncertainties and their fears, they have all that they need in the power of the ripples cast by that redemptive stone ages ago. In 1869, John Wesley Powell became one of America's greatest explorers. You may not know his name. John Wesley Powell was a Civil War veteran who lost most of his right arm up to about the elbow in the Civil War. And then a few years later, in 1869, he also was a geologist, and he accepted the challenge to lead an expedition down the western rivers into and through the Grand Canyon. No one had ever done that before. And so Powell, in the summer of 1869, with his crew of ten men and four wooden boats with supplies for some months, ventured off into this river where no one had traveled before, not knowing where they would end up or how they would get there exactly, and made their way down this powerful river right on through the Grand Canyon, through the rapids, not knowing if there would be a waterfall that they would encounter at some point along the way. Beat up and bruised after a couple of months of their journey, three of the men just abandoned the project right in the middle of the Grand Canyon and set off and disappeared. They were never seen again. Powell and his other crew of five or six that remained, a couple had died, made their way on through the Grand Canyon. He, with half of a right arm, bouncing along through the rapids of the Grand Canyon in the Colorado River there, finally making their way despite their lack of supplies, their handicaps, their weakness, their, their lack of knowledge and certainty of where they were even going to go or how this powerful river was going to take them there. In such a way, God's work carries his church. It carries his disciples, despite their handicaps, despite their lack of supplies, despite their uncertainties and their fears, 
the stone that God dropped in the calmness of creation becomes known through the power of God's work. That stone also becomes clear out of the perplexity of God's message. As I've said moments ago, Luke was the doctor and the historian who was so concerned about the details of the accounts of Jesus' life. And he intended to accomplish the purpose that he explained in chapter 1. He wrote to a man named Theophilus. I don't know if Theophilus might have been Luke's benefactor providing the funds for his efforts, perhaps. And he wrote to Theophilus explaining, I want you to be persuaded of the certainty of these events that you've heard about. And Luke, in order to get there, leads us to this certainty by showing how people were perplexed by the life and the work and the words of Jesus. For example, John the Baptist, hearing about Jesus and his ministry, sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask the question, are you the one that we're supposed to expect from the Scripture? Or should we wait for someone else? John the Baptist wasn't quite sure. And then Jesus spoke forgiveness to a prostitute in the home of a Pharisee. The prostitute wasn't welcomed by the Pharisee, but she was there. And Jesus spoke forgiveness to her. And the guests, the dinner guests around the table began to whisper to themselves, Luke tells us, who is this man who even takes it upon himself to forgive the sins of such a woman as this? Because no man can do that. No person can bestow forgiveness of sins upon another person. Who is this man? Surely they were concerned, perplexed, a bit confused even. And then Luke tells us about the the event in the boat as Jesus and his disciples were crossing the lake and a storm brewed up on the lake and the disciples despaired for their lives and Jesus stood up and rebuked the wind and the waves and they calmed down. And you can imagine the scene as the disciples in the small boat with Jesus, their teacher, behind him began to murmur and whisper to each other, Who is this guy who speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey him? Who who is he? I mean, even the disciples were totally perplexed. And then there were more miracles. Jesus raised the, the daughter of a man who the daughter had died. And then he sends the disciples out on this test drive sort of ministry And then in verse 7, we read this as Luke gives it to us. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And Luke tells us, Herod sought to see Jesus. He wanted to see this guy. He was perplexed, Luke tells us, wondering who is this guy. Now, Herod indeed had removed the head of John the Baptist. Herod was the local civil ruler in the region where Jesus mostly conducted his ministry. And Herod was a man in whose contact list you did not want to be. You didn't want to be contacted by Herod. You didn't want to be on his radar screen because this man did things that were rather unpredictable. He did, in fact, take the head of John the Baptist. And at Herod's own birthday party, it was part of the birthday festivities, let's go have John the Baptist's head on a platter. And they did. 
But now Herod maybe feels a little bit concerned because the other Gospels tell us that, in fact, Herod did think that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And I don't know about you, but if I had ordered someone's head on a platter and then I heard rumors of someone doing things like this, I might be a little worried. Has he come back from the dead? Surely he's coming to get me. Herod surely was more than a bit paranoid about that, and so he suspects that John has risen. He was perplexed. You know, the world remains perplexed about the identity of Jesus. Even now, as we approach Easter, in the, in the Easter season in the spring, if you take a look at cable television, you know, things like the Discovery Channel or the History Channel, you will inevitably see some documentary, in quotes, about the Bible or about the life of Jesus. Just take a look and you'll see something on the schedule and take a watch and see what you see. And there will be all kinds of questions about this mysterious man, Jesus, who lived ages ago and who he was and who maybe he wasn't. I have a book. It's an interesting book called American Jesus. It's written by a religion professor, I think, at, the, at Boston University. And, and he, in this book, kind of works through the American cultural icon that Jesus has become and all the misunderstandings that we have of him. And he kind of categorizes it into a few different categories. He says, for one, early in American history, Jesus was known as the enlightened sage as a result of Thomas Jefferson's views on who Jesus was. And that became uh, sort of a thing to describe Jesus. He wasn't so much God as he was an enlightened sage. Then eventually he became the sweet savior through the the great awakening period of the 1740s and following and and songs and hymns that were written about him following that and and kind of his, his emphasis in American culture was that he was the sweet and gentle savior. And then the 1900s came along and and men largely were absent from the church, women were filling the church and so the church began to speak of Jesus in more manly sort of terms. There was the manly Jesus, even depicted in much artwork. I saw some in the book, uh, a, a drawing of Jesus standing in the corner of a boxing ring in boxing shorts with his muscular build, and he's looking over his shoulder with his long hair flowing in his beard. He's a boxer. He's, he's manly Jesus. To woo men back into the church, to be interested in this manly Jesus. And then in the 1960s, the age of Aquarius and and the Jesus freaks made Jesus out to be a superstar, Jesus Christ superstar. You know, so American culture has made him into all these kinds of different things because his identity is perplexing to us. It's perplexing to us as it was to Herod because he was not a messenger. He was rather the message. He himself was the message of God. The disciples continue Herod's speculations here. You saw it here in verse 18. And following, Jesus asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, much like Herod had speculated. Well, they say that you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he, of course, said to them, Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives the profound answer. You are the Christ of God. You are the anointed one. Peter often got things wrong. This time he got it totally right. And Jesus confirmed it. Now for for a Jew, anointing, which is what Peter's word here, the Christos, the Christ, the anointed one, anointing had great meaning for a Jew. 
meaning even beyond just hospitality of welcoming someone into your home and washing their feet with water or, or whatever. It, it, it had great meaning theologically back into the Old Testament because a Jew would have known that in the Old Testament, the major characters who received anointing were the prophets, the priests, and the kings. They were the anointed ones of Israel, the ones set apart for a particular and important work. And Peter says to Jesus, I know who you are. You're the anointed one. In other words, you are the fulfillment of prophet, priest, and king from all of the Old Testament. All of that unfolding of redemptive history, the ripples of redemption, are fulfilled in you, Jesus. You are the one who is anointed by God. What were their jobs? The prophets, the priests, and the kings. The, the prophet is the one who brought the word of God to the people. Jesus is the word of God. The priests were the ones who stood before God on behalf of the people. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. The kings were the ones who ruled the people as God's right hand. And Jesus, the son of David, is royalty for the throne. And in these ways, Jesus is, in fact, all that you need. Jesus is all that one would have needed in the first century as well, or at any time, in fact, because if there is a sovereign God who made all things, then you must hear from Him. You must receive His communication in order to be aware and understand why you exist. You must stand before Him. If He is the sovereign God who determined right from wrong, then you must stand before Him to answer for what is right or wrong in your own life. And if He is the sovereign God who rules, then you must have Him as the ruler in your life. And in these ways, Jesus is all you need. But that's not always the way that Jesus is marketed in pop culture, is it? That's not the way that He's portrayed in our popular culture. You know, we, we tend to polish Him up in a boxing ring or, or however you might want to put it. And put him on the shelf at Walmart, and he'll sell in that way. And maybe in that way, Herod would buy him. Maybe. Herod was very interested. Herod sought to see him. And in fact, Herod would see him. Later on in Luke, in Luke 23, you may know the story, as Jesus is on trial the night before his death, Jesus is sent to Herod to answer, and he refuses to answer. But there Luke writes this, When Herod saw Jesus appear before him, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Now, there's enormous irony in that, isn't there? Herod, the Tetrarch, was looking for the circus Jesus. He wanted a Jesus to come and perform some trick before him to amaze him and to, to wow him so that he could talk about it. The reality is that three days later he would rise from the dead and Herod would be all too unaware. The stone that God had dropped in Genesis is made clear through the perplexity of God's message and it also is fulfilled in the promise of God's plan. You know, Peter got it right. Jesus, you are the anointed one of God. You are the one who is called of God to fulfill a particular role. And Jesus then swears them to secrecy in verse 22. And 
And he tells them about four things that are to come. He says, I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. And I must be raised. Now, that does not make for a marketable Jesus, does it? And nobody's going to buy that Jesus off the shelf at Walmart. In the, the words of the great theologian Ricky Bobby, you know, you might be interested in the teenage Jesus or the bearded Jesus. What I want is the eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus. But whatever Jesus you might want, you know, take it and pick it and buy it. This Jesus must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and be raised. Not a marketable Jesus. You have to go back to Genesis 3 to understand where this all comes from. I mean, back in Genesis 3, we read already about the the fall of man and the rebellion in the garden and the problems that began to unfold from that. But just before God had given them instructions in the garden, he said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. They did eat, and they did die. And now, suffering and rejection and death are common elements of our existence. Evil exists. And for many, this is a big problem. And the reasoning goes something like this. If God is willing to prevent evil, but He's not able to do it, then He's impotent and therefore not God. If, on the other hand, God is able to prevent evil, but He's not willing then he's malevolent, he's evil itself, and therefore he is not God. And if God is both willing and able to prevent evil, then evil must not exist. But evil does exist, therefore God does not. Do you follow the reasoning? That's that's the reasoning of the common culture. As evil is so evident to the world. And everybody recognizes there are problems in the world. And and skeptics will look at the problems in the world and they'll, they'll quickly conclude, based on this reasoning, they may not even have these steps in their head at all, but they'll think, evil is in the world, there must be no God. And they work through these steps so quickly. Again, listen to them carefully. If God is willing to prevent evil, but he's not able to do it, then he's impotent, so he's not God. If God is able to prevent evil but he's not willing to do it, then he's malevolent. He means bad. He is evil himself, so he's not God. If God is both willing and able to prevent evil, then evil can't possibly exist. That's where the problem of the argument arises. And they conclude, evil does exist, so God must not. There's a long string of reasoning to answer with that a Christian could work through, but the summary of it is this. There's a false premise in the third part of that. The false premise is is this. It assumes that God does not have a good reason to allow evil to exist, even though He is both able and willing to remove it. God must have a reason, one that we can't possibly know. We are, after all, finite as human beings. We don't know all things as God does. We can't possibly know and understand fully His reason for allowing evil to exist. But we do know two things, and those are these. If God does not exist, 
then evil does not exist either. Because apart from a creator who determined right from wrong, there is no such thing as moral obligation. Does that make sense? If there's not a creator who determined these things, then who's to determine them? Something might offend you or cause you trouble or stress or concern, but someone else will see it totally differently. Your perception of evil, if God doesn't exist, is merely your opinion. And that's all. So we can know that. If God doesn't exist, then evil doesn't either. But evil does exist. Therefore, God does too. We can't understand all the reasons behind it. But the second thing is this. And this is what you really have to keep and hold close. Not only does God allow evil for some unknown righteous reason, but He also was willing to suffer it Himself the just for the unjust, in order to defeat it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life. Do you prefer an Eastern religion? I mean, maybe you wonder, what do the other religions have to offer to us? Maybe Islam, it's a growing religion in the world, or Mormonism, or maybe the prevalent religion of a place like Dallas, materialism, right? I mean, what other religion is there out there that you might perhaps prefer on certain days of the week? If you do and when you do, you have to recognize that at that moment you have a God, in quotes, little g God, that will not suffer, that refuses to suffer, that has no interest in suffering. Even as you suffer and endure the hardships of life, Those little g-gods have no interest in it, but they're happy to have your allegiance. Only the true God is willing to suffer. Only the true God did suffer. Only the true God so loved the world that He sent His only Son in order that He might suffer, that He might be rejected and killed so that He might be raised on the third day and therefore overcome evil, and suffering. The promise of God's plan was that He Himself would enter suffering on your behalf. And He did. Ages ago, two stones dropped on the serene calm of creation. And the ripple effect began to move. The ripples began to go. The, the, the first ripples of a false kingdom of man, a kingdom of suffering that would never develop that never could possibly become anything beyond a self-centered kingdom. Rejection, death, and suffering. But then the second stone dropped. The second stone of the waves of truth. The promise of Redeemer. Perplexing as His identity might have been for those who would watch to see. The promise of a Redeemer who would come because, in fact, as Jesus proclaimed, The kingdom of God has come. Even now, as that pivotal moment of all of human history approaches again as we remember it at Easter, the kingdom of God has, in fact, come. The stones have dropped. The ripples continue to move. Do you recognize them? Do you see them? And do you believe? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that you would grant that we might believe that we might see and walk in Your way so that we, O Lord, 
might glorify your name in all that we do because you alone can and have redeemed all of your creation. And in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Last month, we collected $5,869.64 in alms. Funds were used last month to help pay for transportation expenses and medical expenses and for living expenses for people in need. Alms are for mercy and gospel encouragement, both within the local church and beyond. Beyond is what we are giving to today. We as a congregation have heard about the culture of Portland, Oregon from the Morris family. There is a tremendous need for gospel knowledge and encouragement in Portland. The Morrises will be moving there soon to plant a new church through our denomination's church planting agency. Today's alms are designated to help with this. All the money that is received today will go to the North Portland Project, where the Morrises will be serving the Lord in this church planting effort. Now, as the Lord has been gracious and merciful to us, we get to celebrate His abundance and generosity by bringing our gifts and offerings and alms together. Our gifts and offerings may be placed in the box in the center of the sanctuary. Deacons will be on either side with bowls to collect alms for this. And as always, the elders will be up front to pray for those in need and those who also 